The Great Reset versus the Great Uprising. The Long Winter of Our Discontent. Quote, I hold it that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing, and as necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. Unsuccessful rebellions indeed generally establish the encroachments on the rights of the people which have produced them. An observation of this truth should render honest Republican governors so mild in their punishment of rebellions as not to discourage them too much. It is a medicine necessary for sound health of government. End quote Thomas Jefferson. The Great Uprising. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a tweet from Vivek Ramaswamy that says, quote, This is how the Great Uprising defeats the Great Reset, not by force, but with knowledge. I grew up as a child of the 1970s, where I watched the rise and fall of the counterculture protest movements that included everything from Kent State to Patty Hearst, the bombing of the Capitol, the Black Panthers, Gloria Steinem, and eventually the Manson murders would douse the flames and drive the silent majority far, far away from the left. I also remember Nixon's landslide win in 1972 and how hopeless that made everyone on the left feel, like all of it had been for nothing. I was just a kid going to the drive-in on the weekends and playing with my Barbies. What did I know? But I remember the hopelessness, the despair, the malaise. I remember it enough to think there wasn't any point to getting involved with politics or even voting at all. Now that Generation Z has become activated... I am left wondering if that is a good thing or a bad thing. They are aligned with the left, you see, and for them, protests are a way of life, not just online mobs ruthlessly persecuting thought criminals, but on the streets too, making demands with no boundaries. They seem to have been raised that if they throw a fit, they can get what they want. That is the devil's bargain the Democrats made when they aligned with them in the summer of 2020. Political violence in the 1970s was largely to blame for Nixon's landslide win, a catastrophic liability that ensured there wouldn't be protests like that for decades. They scared the silent majority who opted for Nixon's law and order regime. Nixon's resignation gave the Democrats one last chance at the presidency, only to be crushed by Jimmy Carter's failure to thrive. It was so bad that Teddy Kennedy primaried him. Democrats wouldn't hold the presidency again until 1992. But by the year 2000, the pilot light of the protesters was lit again. The Bush v. Gore election woke up the left. There were long laments that they hadn't fought back hard enough and Gore surrendered too soon. Anger was festering and simmering that just 500 or so votes had decided the election, not to mention the Supreme Court's intervention. Something else was happening, though, that had an even bigger impact— the internet. Put enough people together and they will eventually form tribes and fight wars. This was true at the beginning with message boards and only got worse as millions of people were connected on social media for the first time in human history. The internet would amplify simmering unrest not just here but globally over the next 20 years, intensifying like a gathering storm. The Battle of Seattle was among the first mobilizations internationally coordinated mainly via the internet with 400,000 people taking part online. 
when in today's political climate would be an unlikely alliance, the WTO conference united under a common cause a powerful coalition of labor unions, media activists, association of churches, students, NGOs, international form and industrial workers, and anti-globalists. Fair trade, transparency, respecting democratic process, human rights, labor laws and environmental protection were among the top demands of protesters. But they didn't just demand justice for themselves, they also demanded cancellation of debt and abolition of child labor in developing countries. Protesters came from all backgrounds – young, seniors, men and women of all colors, indigenous people, workers, journalists and artists. The city of Seattle, the police and the WTO itself were all surprised by the caliber of protests. They weren't expecting such a coordinated act of civil disobedience from ordinary folks about an issue so nuanced as free trade and the World Trade Organization itself. World Trade Organization was a newly formed continuation of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade that existed since 1947. Overseeing 145 countries, the WTO's main objectives were liberalization of international trade and to promote and manage globalization of national economies around the world. The organization gave voice to multinational corporations from developed countries that allowed them to push for rules that would let them expand freely into developing nations, exploiting the benefits of free trade. On the eve of the millennium, it was clear the sleeping giant was wide awake. The internet had dramatically changed the game in terms of civil unrest. By 2008, we were in a dark place as a country, with two wars in the Middle East and a financial meltdown that threatened to destroy massive banking institutions. If the government didn't step in, it was looking like another 1929. Obama was just about to win the election and was instrumental along with George Bush in bailing out the banks. The decision did two things. It fractured the left between populists and establishment liberals. One group lost all trust in the government. The other group was more loyal than ever. And it was defined by Neil Howe as the crisis that sparked the fourth turning. Losing faith in institutions is one of the hallmarks of the fourth turning. It's easy to look around now and see how many people distrust almost all major institutions of power. Looking back at the early days of civil unrest is quaint, compared to what would happen a decade later. And now, we're at the end of our history block, right in the middle of our crisis. We're in the process of changing our world again. The authors of The Fourth Turning tell us that these crises are like forest fires. Unpleasant, but necessary. They clear the woods for new growth. As we work towards our next high, this crisis will tilt the playing field away from the old and towards the young, they tell us. But the people did rise up in ways they hadn't since the 1960s with Occupy Wall Street. The people versus the government. It was just a taste of what was to come. People were upset about the economy. People were upset about the foreclosure crisis. People were upset about the bailouts uh, and about the fact that it looked like elected officials were working for big business rather than for the people who they're supposed to be working for. The economic, political, and social conditions continue to deteriorate. And there are people that need to be held accountable, and there are systems in place that are us up. But I think that the thing that joins people is understanding that this system is not working. Occupy Wall Street would eventually be discredited and collapse. They were attacking the Obama administration, which gave them nowhere to go. 
They were angry and shouting their anger, but they had no solutions, alternatives, or plans. Meanwhile, the Tea Party formed on the right as a grassroots populist movement protesting the Obama administration. They did have a plan. Vote them all out. Neutralizing Occupy Wall Street was easy enough. They burned themselves out. But this new uprising on the right presented a problem. And what better way to neutralize them than to target them as racists? That is nothing but a bunch of tea-banging rednecks. Angry government and, uh, and, and racism. Yeah. The conservative movement has now crystallized into the white power movement. Who are ill into killing blacks and Jews and women or whatever it may be. I haven't met any racists yet, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, not in the Tea Party. Have you yourself, has anyone accused you of racism for your involvement in the Tea Party? Today, yes. I've been called a couple of bad words today. They're a cult. Nazis. Fascist. Un-American. Racist. Any opposition you have. Any opposition to Obama, to, to the Democratic Party, anything right now, the way to end any argument, racist. This is racism straight up. They say racist, and the argument's over. How can that be? I mean, there is freedom of speech, but, you know, that comes with a responsibility. I think this is dangerous rhetoric. They're fascist stooges who, uh, in the true sense of that word, that's not hyperbole. And, you know, we see these hate groups rising up, and this is definitely part of that. No, I see a lot of anger toward the government, but I don't see any hate. The media has told everyone, uh, these these blind, misguided people, that the Tea Party is racist, so that, so that, you know, African-Americans and other, other groups and Democrats won't participate in something which would definitely help out their children. You can't deal with these people at all. That, that's what they want to do. They want to categorize us to where we're all, all fighting each other. I think they're threatened and they're afraid we're going to win. So they're trying, like, how can we bring it down? Oh, the worst thing you could be in this country is a racist. This is about hating a black man. The honest with you, the first time I heard Obama speak, I thought... There's a guy that knows what he's talking about. He speaks very, very well. But he has converted it to socialism. Take from the people who are working and give to those who aren't. You are un-American. You are anti-American. You do not love this country. And you are rooting against America. They see millions of people in this country asking the question among themselves and within their neighborhoods, are these fools in Washington going to wreck our country? And it scared them half to death. When you think about how all these events line up in history, it's easy to see how the clash between the MAGA movement and the Great Awakening would have looked like a civil war of sorts in the summer of 2020. Occupy Wall Street was crumbling in 2011. By 2012, Obama won re-election, amplifying charges of racism that weren't present in his first term. Right around the same time, with the rise of the Tea Party and the idea that half the country hated its first black president, Critical theory began spreading at colleges and public schools. Protests began on college campuses against racism. Black Lives Matter was also on the rise in the middle of Obama's second term. The uprisings in Michigan and Wisconsin were also happening to protest conservative policy. The media praised them as unprecedented activism from the left. These two forces converged by 2015, with the rise of the Tea Party candidate Donald Trump who transformed the movement into MAGA. Because they were seen as racist, the left began violent attacks against Trump and his supporters. This was supported by the media and all of the same institutions that would eventually become the resistance. The violent protests weren't just against Trump supporters. Bernie Sanders supporters were rising up against Hillary in ways we hadn't seen since 1968. 
After Trump won, the uprisings became much bigger in terms of numbers, and government officials and corporations and the media supported them. Burning cars and smashed windows. A small group of protesters dressed in black, their faces covered, armed with hammers and bricks. Facing off with thousands of officers on site, many in riot gear, confronting them with flashbang grenades and pepper spray. All of a sudden, the police officers started to spray pepper spray and they got our audio technician. They're coming. They're see us running because they're going to throw more flashbangs. The chaotic scene just blocks outside the security area of the inauguration and parade route. I personally have anti-establishment slants, but I don't think that this is anything that I want to be a This checkpoint is closed! Before the swearing-in ceremony even began, protesters tried to block checkpoint entrances. During President Trump's speech, several demonstrators were escorted out of the area. Several officers injured during the protest today, and more than 100 people arrested. Once the inaugural parade began, the newly sworn-in president facing thousands of peaceful protesters amongst his supporters. NBC's Stephanie Gosk was with him all day. When Donald Trump took the oath of office, the people here sang, we shall overcome. Resist from day one! Similar demonstrations across the country. Arrest outside Trump Tower, New York City. A human chain across San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. From Phoenix to Houston to Chicago, people protesting the country's new president on his first day in office. Tonight, thousands of protesters remain in downtown D.C., occasionally facing off with police. We have seen many people injured, both protesters and police officers. And tomorrow, D.C. Clearly, much of our country didn't accept Trump's win, and the protests were being encouraged. 2017, the Women's March, 3.5 to 6 million. 2018, the Women's March, 1.5 million. 2018, March for Our Lives, 1.2 million. 2018 March for Our Lives, 1 to 2 million. 2020 George Floyd protests, 26 million, amid a global pandemic that didn't yet have a vaccine. Once elected, Trump was at war with the administrative state determined to make him a one-term president. Now we know for sure, thanks to Matt Taibbi's extraordinary reporting, that Hamilton 68 was essentially an automatic softball pitching machine to direct the media to declare Twitter users Russian bots or trolls. It was living, breathing, fake news, just as Trump said it was. The alignment of protesters and Democratic politicians continued and intensified by the summer of 2020. The last thing they seemed to care about was public welfare, where the pandemic was concerned, public safety in cities like Kenosha or Portland, or the billions of dollars worth of destruction that destroyed small businesses that were still standing after lockdowns. What none of us knew at the time and couldn't possibly imagine because we always assume our leaders have our best interests at heart was that there was a coordinated effort to make sure the protests were ongoing and as bad as they could possibly be, not unlike what happened on January 6th. Bookends of violence both blamed on Trump. Never let a crisis go to waste. Molly Ball in Time magazine puts it this way, quote, Protecting the election would require an effort of unprecedented scale. As 2020 progressed, it stretched to Congress, Silicon Valley, and the nation's state houses. It drew energy from the summer's racial justice protests, many of whose leaders were a key part of the liberal alliance. The protests had to be ongoing. They had to be bad. 
and the media had only one way to cover them or else, as fiery but mostly peaceful protests. The summer of 2020 could be seen as a hot war that arose as part of the ongoing resistance against Trump. One of the big events the press barely covered was how the crowd eventually converged on the White House, banging on the fence with tear gas flying. The subtext was, our racist president drove us to this point, and now you, America, must do something about it. There were times overnight when Washington was in chaos. There were running battles between protesters and police through the streets. And coursing through the crowd was a seething anger that only built as the evening wore on. This is just playing out just a few metres here from the White House. A row of police officers here trying to keep control. The White House and the President in lockdown. He is barricaded in that building while we've got protesters outside and a row of police officers trying to regain control of the nation's capital. There was vandalism and looting too by a tiny minority. I return to the summer of 2020 because it is still, along with COVID, one of the biggest stories still untold in the mainstream. If the media doesn't talk about it for much of this country, it just didn't happen. The problem is, people could see it with their own eyes, some in their own neighborhoods, like this. According to Washington Post reporter Frederick Kunkel, who shot this video Monday night in Columbia Heights, 49-year-old D.C. resident Lauren B. Victor was surrounded by Black Lives Matter protesters who demanded that she raise her fist in solidarity, which Victor would not do, even though she told Kunkel she was sympathetic to the movement. Today, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser reacted. What I saw in those videos was highly uh, inappropriate. It was likely against the law if they were on private property. Um, but more importantly, I don't think it had anything to do with demands for social justice. Bowser called on business owners and paid. And this. Night four, the East Precinct remains the property of the people. Sources within the department tell me they are actively working on a plan to reclaim their precinct, a feat that may come with contention. Considering Assistant Chief Deanna Nolette told me she was met with bumping when she stopped by to check on the remaining officers working inside the precinct. Mayor Jenny Durkin said when and how to make their move will be critical, for they don't want a repeat of the violence we saw on Capitol Hill last week. We've talked about SPD moving in. They did the assessment today, and there's going to be an ongoing assessment about when it would be safe um, and appropriate for them to move in there, uh, including response times and the like. Um, we, we don't and this. want to introduce... I'm sorry, sir. I'm very sorry about that, man. Armed with nothing but a fire extinguisher, 70-year-old Robert Cobb tried to defend his friend Sue's shop from a group of arsonists and looters Monday night. They just threw a bottle at this guy. The whole thing was caught on camera. We want to warn our viewers it's difficult to watch. Fresh from a double bypass surgery, Robert was standing guard until someone punched him so hard in the face that he collapsed to the sidewalk. I, I can't. I, I can't. And I can't even think about how bad it could have been. I mean, it's bad enough. They broke his jaw. 
Robert playfully dodged our cameras most of the day because he said he wants the story to be about how much the Kenosha community loves his friend Sue. It's funny because Sue said the story is about Robert's bravery. Either way, their reunion was beautiful. It wasn't just an alignment of power between major government institutions and corporations, not to mention the media. It was also a devil's bargain with the hard left. Now we know what our country became once Biden took power. Juries would be intimidated by mobs waiting outside the courtrooms, threatening once again to take to the streets and burn everything down if things did not go their way. People were fired on command. Speech was silenced. A blanket of fear covered everyone and everything. When you put it all together and you look at the protests, even going back to the 1970s and on through the 2000s, from Occupy to the summer of 2020, then you see that only one group has been targeted by our government, called terrorists and extremists, thrown in a D.C. jail and put in solitary, charged with seditious conspiracy. You begin to see the bigger picture. That is why I defend the January 6th protesters. They were not unique in their frustration with and demands of our government to address their concerns. They were not unique in their violence or their mobilization. They were just on the wrong side. Sabotaged by the FBI, targeted by the DOJ, and demonized by the press, we appear to have all too easily and comfortably slipped into a kind of authoritarianism that runs counter to our country's founding principles. Our government can no longer hear Jefferson's message. The Great Reset We find ourselves at a major crossroads, a fourth turning, that could go either way. One road will be decided by the World Economic Forum, those fat cats who gather at Davos, and one road will be decided by the people. Vivek Ramaswamy understands that this is the moment, right now, Our world is about to change forever, and it could go either way. He rightly senses simmering unrest that has been intensifying on the left and right since the turn of the millennium. More importantly, Tucker, is we should not see this great reset, this dissolution of boundaries between the public and private sector, between different nations, ultimately create this new world order. And CBDCs, mark my words, are just the symptom of that deeper cancer. This is about an uprising of everyday citizens in democracies around the world. It's not just Canada. It's not the United States. It's Western Europe, too, rising against the biggest threat to actual democracy, which I think is the rise of this managerial class in democracies around the world that are crushing the will of everyday people through bureaucracies. And it's the same people, by the way, Bill, who staff corporate boards of directors, who end up as associate deans of universities, who then end up being appointed as diplomats abroad. These are the unelected class of leaders that ultimately, I think, are using their bureaucratic power to supplant the will of everyday, not only Americans, but Canadians and Western Europeans, too. And that's why we're seeing a fusion of both the left and the right here saying that actually we want our voices heard. We want to be able to speak without fear of putting food on the dinner table. And you know what? The beautiful thing about a democracy is that so far, thank God, this has been a peaceful set of protests. In searching for anything on The Great Reset, I can't escape yet another content label by Google. For podcast listeners, we're looking at an image. Great Reset, Wikipedia. The Great Reset Initiative is an economic recovery plan drawn up by the World Economic Forum in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The project was launched in June of 2020, with a video featuring then-Prince of Wales Charles released to market's launch. And that is a future I can't abide. 
I can't abide that every time I search on Google, I know they're manipulating the results to make me think better, to make me think correctly, to make me think what they want me to think. My generation and the millennials are the last of all humans to have known real life before the internet. The Zoomers know of no other way of living than with a smartphone in their hand, constant surveillance, their own online platforms, and the order out of chaos they have designed for themselves. It is up to us to save them so they can know the same kinds of freedoms we grew up with and took for granted. What stops more people from pushing back against the kind of fascist crackdown is fear. They're afraid they will be targeted, shunned, and ostracized. As long as the Democrats continue to demonize the populists as extreme MAGA Republicans, they can't unite the country. They can't lead us through this perilous moment, and they can't be trusted. Good leaders look after all of their citizens, not just the compliant ones. Now we must rely on alpha voices to get us through it. People like Vivek Ramaswamy, who will help shine a light out of darkness. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a tweet by Vivek Ramaswamy that says, The Great Reset calls for dissolving the boundaries between the public and private sectors, between nations, between online and offline worlds, and the will of the individual citizens be damned. The Great Uprising has an answer to that proposal. Hell no. Orwell's Choice A friend asked me recently whether I still believed abortion should be legal or whether I was in favor of the child tax credit or pro-environment, and if so, how could I stand on the side of people who don't support any of those things? Orwell's choice means you can have your rent paid for, equality among citizens, and any government social policy you want. But you have to give up personal freedom. Freedom of the mind. Freedom to love language and history. Freedom to love the past. Raise your children how you want to raise them. Freedom to live where you want, read what you want, watch what you want, search for what you want, find the truth. And yes, freedom to love the non-compliant. Ask the question again, would you be willing to sacrifice all of the policies you care about just to have freedom of the mind? The answer always comes back the same, yes. You might say that's selfish, that I should care about other people, poor people. It isn't that I don't care about them. But even for them, life is not worth living without the freedom to think for yourself. And that isn't what they want on the left anymore. That's why Orwell wrote 1984 with the best passage saved for last. Quote, Winston, sitting in a blissful dream, paid no attention as his glass was filled up. He was not running or cheering any longer. He was back in the ministry of love with everything forgiven, his soul as white as snow, He was in the public dock, confessing everything, implicating everybody. He was walking down the white-tiled corridor with the feeling of walking in sunlight and an armed guard at his back. The long-hoped-for bullet was entering his brain. He gazed up at the enormous face, 40 years it had taken him to learn what kind of smile was hidden beneath the dark mustache. Oh, cruel, needless misunderstanding. Oh, stubborn, self-willed exile from the loving breast. Two gin-scented tears trickled down the sides of his nose. But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. Winston could lose almost everything and still be okay. But losing freedom of the mind was akin to a bullet in the brain. 
The Great Reset, by design, must eliminate freedom of the mind. They can't afford any dissent. What do they plan to do with the millions who drift far from their grasp? Where will they put them? Where will they put us? America isn't perfect. It's a work in progress and still young. A brand new country founded on an optimistic dream. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Each of us has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These rights, according to the Declaration of Independence, are unalienable, which means they can't be given and they can't be taken away. When the people of America rise up and demand to be heard, whether they come from cities or the middle of the country, our government best listen. Thanks for listening to my Substack, Sasha Stone. Substack.com. You can send me an email if you'd like, sashastone at gmail.com, all one name, Sasha Stone, S-A-S-H-A-S-T-O-N-E, at gmail.com. And remember, to thine own self be true. Thank you so much, Los Angeles. It was almost 100 years ago. That a little girl, 12 years old, was put on a train in Kiev, Russia, and made the journey 1,200 miles to Rotterdam in Holland. She then boarded a ship to make the great voyage to freedom in a place called America. That little girl was my grandmother. She... And her daughter, Rose, inspired me to achieve everything that I've achieved in my life. Her courage will never be forgotten. It sings in every song I sing. This one is for her. We've been traveling far Without a home But not without A star